We've been getting to know Jesus over the past few weeks, and I always want to bring us back to this, especially when we have a break in the action like we did last week uh, with uh, Rick being here to share with what God's doing there. But uh, this journey began all the way back in December, and we talked about uh, his birth and, of course, the miracle that that was and everything that was entailed in that. And we talked about joy and peace and love and uh, just all of these things that, that the hope of Jesus brings. And it was all about anticipation, anticipating his arrival, trying to build up that anticipation so that we could even identify with uh, the people in his time that were just waiting for something to happen. It's like we've been praying, God, do something, do something. And then the Messiah shows up on scene. Uh, His name in Hebrew is Yeshua. It means the Lord saves or salvation. And it's important that we keep reminding ourselves of that because that was his mission statement. That is his mission statement. And uh, his mother, Mary, of course, the miraculous story of his birth, but at the same time, and we only, it was like this, this like brief little blip on the screen in the story, if you were here. But at the same time, uh, Mary's cousin Elizabeth was pregnant, right? Too, with John who we call John the Baptist, that, that's not his denomination. That's what he did, right? John the Immerser, perhaps, might be a better description. But uh, she was praying at the same time. There's this really cool thing that God did through his spirit when they met, and the babies went nuts in their mom's wombs, and they're like, whoa, right? And that kind of thing happened. And I'm sure it was just like that. It's like, what is going on? This child, right? You're with me. Okay, good. We've not talked a lot about John since then, but he's kind of been coming up as a thread through the story here and there. Uh, His mission and his purpose are powerfully linked with that of Jesus. Uh, But since his introduction, he's really been barely mentioned. And so we're going to talk about him today. It's been 20 years since we last talked about teenage Jesus, right? Not heard that phrase often, have you? But remember, he was in the temple. He was a teenager, so it was teenage Jesus. And he was hanging out with the scholars there over Passover. And they were talking about uh, the Torah and the Word. And they were, of course, really amazed by all the things that he knew. And then the next thing that Scripture tells us, it says that he grew up strong and wise and full of the Holy Spirit. In a nutshell, that's what it says. And then we don't see him. Like we, Then all of a sudden, there's this fast-forward in time, and that's all that we know. What happened? What happened in that segment of time? We tried to address a little bit of that, but what we know is that he would have been studying the Torah. We know that uh, he would have been filling his mind and his heart, not only with God's word, but with all of the words of rabbinic scholars and all of these heavyweights within the world that he lived in their writings and their commentary. But another thing that he would have been doing He would have been learning a trade. And because we only hear about Mary as time goes on, and we don't hear much more about uh, Joseph, his earthly dad, right? We don't hear mentioned. And so a lot of scholars think that the reason is because Joseph at some point passed away, like early. And so we only hear about Mary. And so if that's the case, if that's true, part of the reason that we don't hear about Jesus perhaps during this segment of time is that he would have been actually working as the oldest son to support his family. So, of course, that's subjective. We don't know if that's true or not, but it would make a lot of sense in this situation. But the point in all of this is that he was preparing. God was getting him ready, whether it was through his life or the different things that were going on. God had a purpose. And God also has a purpose in the way that Jesus and John's stories are going to unfold together. And so when John's mission begins, and that's what we're going to talk about today, when John's mission begins, that signals the beginning of Jesus' mission also in his ministry. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. 
And Luke sets the scene with basically this phrase here. And uh, their stories are unfolding together. He sets the stage for this ministry of Jesus. And in two verses, he gives us this snapshot of the world that Jesus would step into. And you're looking at that, and you're looking at the words, and you're looking at the titles, and you're like, eh, I don't even, I'm, not, I'm not sure I want to really dig into this. And I'm not even going to read it to you. I'm just going to basically tell you what it says. Uh, it's basically, here's who was in charge of the world at this time. See, I did that like in just a few words. That's pretty amazing. Luke gives us way more detail than is necessary to establish what's going on, but it's actually for a very good reason. Uh, Herod, who had been in charge of everything, he died. And he left Judea uh, to be ruled by his three sons. And history tells us that when somebody dies and they leave sort of a leadership vacuum and then they divide it up between people, that rarely goes well. Right? You've got people that are competing and different things that are happening. And so you thought that the anticipation for Jesus' arrival in Advent was big? He shows up on the scene. There are all these people that, you know, that know that he's there. Uh, you've got even people in the temple that say, he's the one. And then we hear nothing for 30 more years. And the world continued to languish under Roman rule with the empire itself beginning to creak and starting to show these signs of wear because uh, they had been all about conquering, right? And, and acquiring, if we want to be nice about it, but basically going through and taking over lands and they'd reached the pinnacle of that. And so now they were trying to maintain it, which was difficult. The population was shifting and there were fewer true Romans, so to speak, that knew Roman ways. And largely this was due to a few things that I think you'll actually recognize maybe uh, in this day and age as well. Uh, They had a lot of foreign influence within their land, which caused some problems for them. Of course, corruption in their government, uh, abandonment, of marriage was a big one too. And so true Romans were not actually having true Roman kids and teaching them true Roman ways. And so all these other influences were coming in and causing problems. But here's the deal that you need to know about the world that these guys are about to step into. In Roman society, everything was accepted as long as you complied. And the only fixed truth was the glory of Caesar and he must have his due. The only fixed truth in this society was the glory of Caesar that he must be praised and even worshipped in some way. And so the result of this for the Roman people was aimless living in the pursuit of pleasure, guided purely by superstition. They had the old gods. They had the new gods. They had the Greek gods. They had the Roman gods. They had all the foreign gods. They have, well, man, if I give this god a biscuit, is this one going to get mad? Right? So it basically broke down to superstition for a lot of people. But the only real resistance in all of their acquisition in all the lands that they came to inhabit, in all the lands that they they basically wanted to go in, they wanted to teach them Greek and Roman ways, they wanted to set up all these things and then take the things that they could from the cultures that they conquered and make them their people. But the only real resistance that they had came from the Jews. They were tenacious, and they refused to be homogenized into the Roman machine. And so as a result... There were a couple of failed results and, or I'm sorry, a couple of failed revolts, different thing. Trying to take over, right, by force. But at the end, the only result was this tense Roman occupation. And they would uh, do things like regularly crucifying people along the pathway so that you could be reminded every day, listen, if you try that again, things are not going to go well for you. They used cruelty to remind them of their place. But even within uh, 
the camp of the Jews, so to speak, they had problems of their own because there were two sects that were vying for power, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And, of course, we've heard about them before. But the Sadducees had a much more secular view of the world, and those views actually appealed in some ways to the Roman overlords. And so they used this to control the system with almost a godfather-like iron grip, right? It kind of was a little bit like mafioso here, as people would vie for attention and they might remove this guy from power or have someone take this person out or go threaten this person just to make sure that they could control things. And so uh, there was a high priest, who, his name was Annas. He'd been the high priest, but he was removed. And then eventually he used his influence to install his son-in-law Caiaphas and they used their combined might to silence any dissenting view. So to most people in this time, especially the poor, the world was chaotic. The world was selfish. Uh, the world was kind of hopeless. And this is the scene and the stage that John the Baptist steps onto as he reenters our story. And what we're going to see, guys, is that John was the waymaker for Jesus. He was the waymaker. He was his opening act, if you will. He's like the warm-up guy that comes out before the real comedian. We need one of those, apparently. So... <laughs> It was his opening act. And understanding John is going to help us understand Jesus in the beginning of his ministry too. And so we're going to continue here. And I want to focus on this particular phrase. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So like I said, John the Baptist's bio is really pretty short. But we do know that John was a unique dude, okay? Somebody in this church right now says, I think that guy was sitting behind me last week. That's a man right there. He was a unique dude. He wore weird clothes. He identified more with the prophets of old than he did with people in his time. Uh, he ate strange food, locusts and honey. By the way, they're kosher, just in case you wondered. And he lived a life that was set apart from society. He also identified with the poor and with the outcast more than he did with the religious elite that he could have very well been a part of because he came from a priestly line. He preached an unusual message to the Judeans who went out to the wastelands to see him. But here's what I want you, I want you to see in this verse. That word right there, word is actually the word. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. That word that's used in the original language, is rhema. And it means the spoken word of God. This isn't the same as the other word for word that we focused on at the very beginning of Jesus' story, which was logos, remember? This is a little bit different. Rhema is more like a spoken word or God's special call that would be on a person's life. If you've ever tried to set up your smart TV so that you could watch stuff that you're subscribed to and you had to plug in an activation code, that's what this is. It's an activation code that is, uh, makes it so that you can do what you need to do. It gets you started in ministry. Um, it's similar to this idea of Moses when he was there at the burning bush with God and how God spoke to him. So anytime that we hear God's word, we need to remember that that moment is God's rhema going forth. So if a person comes to you and says, I have a word for you, man, and I feel like God is saying this, and there's something in your heart that says, Yes! That's God's rhema. Even in this very moment, 
me speaking to you, something I might say today or last week or next week, could very well be God's rhema going forth. If there's something in your spirit that that, like, yes, God's been saying that, that confirms this thing in me. And, you know, God's rhema is not always, hey, you need to be a pastor. Or, hey, you need to go on a missions trip. Or, hey, you need to sell everything and move to uh, some country where they're mean to people. Right? Because that's kind of what we think a lot of times. Like, if I really surrender my life to God and he speaks this rhema into my life, it's probably going to make me do something that I don't want to do. How many of you thought that before? Let's be honest here. We're friends. But that's not always the case. In fact, many times, in fact, I'd say most, like almost every time, it starts with a small step of obedience. It's God speaking softly or gently to you. It's like, you know, you really should do this. That person that you see there at the break room sitting by themselves, go talk to her. It's the words of a friend that sparks something in our hearts and... um, Personal story, you guys have probably heard this, some of you, but uh, I wasn't always a pastor here. In fact, for a a long period of time uh, at Desperation Church, even before we were Desperation Church, I was just a dude that showed up on the weekends and played on the worship team and did stuff like that. And so we were meeting in uh, this school for a little while, this grade school. And uh, there was one weekend that was coming up where they said, listen, you know, it's great that you play bass and all, but... The three people, basically, that were leading, that would lead normally for worship, weren't going to be there. So said, we need you to lead. I'm like, uh, I don't think so. Sorry. I don't even play guitar very well. I only know, like, three or four chords. It's like, well, just pick songs with those three or four chords in them, and it'll be fine. Right? And so, it's like, man, I'd, I'm a background guy. I like to be, just do my thing back here. And I'll sing background vocals sometimes, but, you know, I just don't, that makes me really uncomfortable. And so they're, of course, like, no, you can do this. We really need you to do this. Come on, just do it. And so I was like, okay, I'll do it. I give up. And so, um, so I remember that weekend, I did try to choose all songs that I knew, but I forgot one of the songs had a B chord in it, and my hand didn't make that shape. Like, it didn't even know how to. Just like, hold on. There we go. No, right? And so it was stressful. It was hard. I felt like it was terrible, but... There was also this moment about it, and I'll never forget Jenny Brown, right afterwards, came over and she said, listen, I know that was hard for you to do, but you need to know that, I mean, you did a great job, and everybody was worshiping, and that's what's most important, you know, and she was so encouraging in that moment, but what I remember, didn't mean to get this emotional about it, but what I remember in that moment is God saying to me, not like a booming voice, but just speaking softly, softly to me. He's like, listen, when I give you opportunities, when things come up in your life, if you will say yes to those things, I will keep giving you things to do. And that's how I became pastor of Desperation Church. <laughs> it's true. I mean, true story, right? I could have never predicted this for my life. I... I But the truth of the matter is, when we say yes, God's going to honor that yes, and he's going to keep putting things in front of you. Every time, you know, it's like open-handed living. Maybe you've heard it that way. It's like, I have my hands open, and they are raised to God. And if he wants to put things in my hands, I will take those things. And if he wants to take things out of my hands, I will let those things go. And that's what we're called to be, guys. So hearing the word spoken, 
Perhaps even a message like this. It could be a call to action for you or confirmation that something God's already showing you. And I believe that serving others is one of the ways that God does that. It's like a big part of how he speaks to us and how he uh, kind of starts to show us maybe what that path would be like. And so when we ask for volunteers here, it's not just because we need people to do stuff. It's because you need to do stuff. It's a huge thing for our church. Service, right? Every member ministry we've said in the past. The idea is that if you're here and you call this your church home, God's got something for you to do. And if you're on part of another church somewhere else, God has something for you to do there. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, God's put something in you that he wants to use. And so enough about that. Rama, the more we hear his word, the more opportunities we have for his spirit to lead us in that way. So remember, John's story, right? It's intertwined with that of Jesus. Uh, an angel appeared to his father, Zechariah, who was the high priest at that time. And the angel in that moment basically said that John was to be a Nazarite or somebody who takes on specific vows. And I have to say this very quickly just because we don't have time to talk about what it looks like. But it's basically a person that takes on specific vows for their life in order to be set apart for God's service. It's about holiness. And we know that John's parents loved the Lord. Uh, Scripture is very clear about that. They raised him to understand that he had a specific role. And I'm not even sure that they knew what that specific role was, but they instilled in him, listen, this is what happened in your story, and then this happened, and then an angel showed up. I mean, can you imagine growing up with that? That should be kind of cool. They told him, you have a specific role to play. And so then we come to this Scripture here in Luke. And it says this, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And if that was spoken in Hebrew, which it was. And all flesh shall see the Yeshua of God, right? Salvation. Pretty cool. This imagery comes from Isaiah 40. And it indicates that John is fulfilling a prophecy by paving the way for the Messiah. He's the way maker. He's making the road straight and level. And so for those of us that follow Jesus, and and even in this time, they refer to those people as the way through a large portion of history. And... To some degree, this particular passage has a bearing on that as to why they do that. So what's the first thing that we see John doing? Let's jump back real quick. And he went into the region all around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, baptism was familiar to his audience then, especially his Jewish audience. Washings were a part of devotion and restoring ritual cleanliness, of course, And then immersion itself was one of three requirements if you were going to convert to Judaism in that time. But this seems to be something different here. It seems that this baptism was a symbol of repentance. And it was about preparing the way in our hearts. So in a way, I guess you could say that it was becoming ritually clean. But it was all about setting apart our lives for holiness. And holiness isn't a subject that people necessarily talk about a lot these days, especially, you know, in church. I mean, not that I go to a lot of churches. I go to this one. But, you know, even when you look, you know, through the things that we talk about, holiness doesn't necessarily come up 
as the particular message that we're going to talk about on a weekend. And so, uh, and so if you're visiting with us today, and we're going to talk about holiness, and we're going to talk about sin, and if you're not a believer, this is going to sound weird, but you're kind of off the hook for this stuff, in a way. I'm not saying that the things that God challenges you to aren't important and aren't important for everybody, but what I'm saying is this is I'm speaking to the believers in this room today. But another thing I want to say about that, too, is that when we live for God and we live his way, it can benefit all of us. So we don't like to talk about change, especially when it comes, um, when it comes to change in our behavior. Right? It's like, I'll get as real as you want until you start challenging me about things that I need to change. If you start telling me how to raise my kids, mm, right? Nobody likes to hear that. No one likes to hear how we should change. It makes us uncomfortable. Uh, we worry about things like, well, if I challenge this person, then they're going to challenge me. And I don't want that. We fear that if we allow people to see the dirt in our lives, sometimes that we're afraid that they won't like us. Peter, one of the disciples who was a part of the inner circle of Jesus said this, and it's in first Peter one, starting with verse 13. And this is just encapsulated here, but he says basically that because we found the Messiah, it should cause us to put away the sins of our past because he who is holy calls us to be holy. Sometimes we hear the flip-flop of that. We'll say, well, you know, now that Jesus has come, you know, it's all grace and love and mercy. And yeah, it is like the invitation is. But look at when Jesus even talks. He's always challenging us to a higher standard. It's never a lower one. He calls us to be holy. So we don't like to show weakness, yet that's exactly what's required. We need a Savior. And so we acknowledge this when we confess our sin, which is the other part of what uh, he would be talking about here, this repentance. There's confession that's involved in that. And essentially, confession is this. It means to agree or to admit or to acknowledge or to declare publicly even that these things are wrong for you. In the case of confessing one's sins, I think this is really good. What you're saying is that I agree with God that this is wrong for me. When you confess, you're saying, I agree with you, God. I'm on the same page with you. This is wrong for me. And we're willing to declare that publicly in the sense of one sorrow or guilt or resolution to change. And so that's a lot of what baptism is about. Basically saying, I'm going to live a different way from now on. It doesn't mean we won't sometimes mess up. But what it means is that we're making a stand and we're living for Jesus at that point. So all of this stuff is about relationships, though. Relationships are the primary way, or at least one of them, that God works in our lives. So relationship with him, obviously, would be things like uh, getting into his word or uh, prayer, just talking with him, listening to him. We spent the whole summer talking about that, right, in our spiritual disciplines. Uh, Rick Warren says it this way. You are as close to God as you choose to be. We have a choice in the matter. When we regularly engage him, it makes such a difference in our lives. And, of course, the other relationship would be relationships with people who love him. And often the next step in our growth with God involves another person. In fact, I think most of the time, the next step in our growth with God involves another person. 
whether it's that word that comes from somebody or somebody challenging us to say, hey, how you doing with this? Or even living life with people that are on the same page with you. Other believers who love you, pray for you, can encourage you. People who know you on a deep level. I think part of this too is like if we knew, like I had one person in my life that I knew was going to ask me tough questions sometimes. They know what I struggle with and they know what my thing is, like the thing that's hard, right? Like the big sin challenge in my life. I think if we all had one person like that, that we knew was going to say, hey, how are you doing with X? And we were going to have to answer them. Maybe we'd stop doing stuff, right? So one last thing on this and then we'll move forward. But one of the questions I think in our times too is like, well, what is sin exactly? You know, how do we define that? What's the absolute truth? And we live in this age where many people don't even know what sin is. First John 3, 4 states that sin is lawlessness. Literally, it's Torahlessness if we want to get really technical about it. God gave his people instruction so that we could live a life for him, so that we could be set apart. It's not only in our, our own best interests to live the way that God commands us to live, but it's also holy and pleasing to him. And so in this day and age, the hard part of that is we have this moral relativism and we're actually talking about this on wednesday nights as a part of our class if you're not in that you need to be here it is awesome it's been really good and it's because i'm not teaching it but um it's it's just fantastic i mean this is huge for us because if we could not be so relative but we we would understand that there are truths and that uh because here's the deal moral relativism suggests things like well there are no sins or it's just you know people there are only sicknesses or misfortunes, or I've even heard some pastors will not use the word sin, but they'll actually use the word mistakes. And sin and mistakes aren't the same thing. Yeah, uh, when you sin, it's a mistake. But a mistake seems to say, like, I had no idea that this was happening, or I, 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 I goofed. Oops, I did it again, right? <laughs> or whatever. It's just like, no, I mean, when sin is a willful choice. We're choosing this way versus the way that God commands us. So, um, But here's the bottom line with that. We need to remember, guys, that God loves us and he wants to set us free. And part of that freedom is that we don't have to be bound to all of the junk that sin brings with us. And so much of the Bible is concerned with how we can live that life free from the power of sin. And uh, you can look more about that if you want to. It's in Romans 5, and you can just read the whole chapter. It's pretty amazing. So that was John's message. He's calling people to basically change their direction. It's like, you were living this way, you need to turn, and you need to go this way. But John's purpose was to get people ready for the coming king. Right? He's the way maker. He is the guy that comes in, and he wants everybody to understand that things are about to change. And so I was trying to think, like, how could I describe this to you guys? Like, how could I uh, fully convey this? And so I started thinking about... James Brown, okay? You're like, well, why are we going here? Stick with me. So James Brown, who is amazing, by the way. I love James Brown. If you ever go to a James Brown show, which you can't now because he's passed away, but if you find one online to watch, and I was going to show you, but what I wanted to show you was so long I didn't have time. The introduction for James Brown coming on stage is a spectacle. So the band starts playing, right? And of course, it's funky and it's awesome. And I'm in. I mean, as soon as the funk starts, I'm in, okay? Like, it doesn't matter what you do. It's on. So then the band starts kind of like going through, like weaving together, like all of these tidbits from his most famous songs. 
And depending on which version you find, sometimes there's like a choir of people singing with them, and they actually yell out the titles of the songs when it's happening, okay? And so then you've got thousands of people that are in the crowd. They're like, yeah, man, I am in. It does not matter what happens now. And so then this gentleman sidles up to the mic. Ladies and gentlemen, right? You are about to see something that you've not seen in the entirety of the existence of your life, right? He's like working the crowd. He's building up the anticipation. And he makes them like wait forever. He builds this tension because he wants them to understand something. The human being that's responsible for all the hit songs that you are about to hear, the songs that have been the soundtrack of your life, is about to take the stage. You're getting worked up. You're waiting for James Brown to come out, aren't you? It's like, listen. The creative force that's behind all of the highlights of your life, your dances at school, hanging out in your living room with your kids, rocking out at the stoplight in the car when you guy next to you catches you. I feel good, right? Like, oh, dude, I'm sorry, I just lost it. It's light so long. That man's about to take the stage. So you better get ready. Right? You get it. And then James Brown comes out. And then, of course, everybody loses it. Baby! Right? It's a lot cooler when he does it. That's what's happening here. John the Baptist is essentially pre-preaching the message of the Messiah. Get ready. He's coming. The man that's responsible for all the hits that you've read about in the Hebrew Scriptures is about to take the stage. All of these moments in your life, every Passover, it's about him. On down the line. What's even cooler is John actually lived that. His role was to go before and announce the coming of the Savior. He was warming up the crowd and he put all of his energies into that task. Guys, John was holding open the curtain so that Jesus could step onto the stage. So we have this wild looking dude operating out in the wilderness, speaking with urgency and speaking with authority. He's challenging people to get ready and to turn and join the way. And as people were coming to them, he was calling them out and he was challenging them to live better. Like, I mean, and there's even, if you go to Matthew's version, uh, he actually calls out some of the Sadducees and some of the Pharisees, right? In Luke's version, he's calling out everybody. Makes me think that he probably was doing this more than once. Challenging them, don't rest on the coattails of your moms and your dads that served God, your ancestry. Yeah, you may say that you are sons and daughters of Abraham, and that's great. But listen, this needs to be personal for you. The change in their hearts had to show in their lives. It's challenging people. Listen, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven doesn't refer to a time or to a place, but to a condition in which the rulership of God is acknowledged by humankind. A condition in which God's promises of a restored universe, guys, free from sin and death, are on. 
They're fulfilled. They are happening. So to those who put their trust in Jesus and his message, we commit our lives to living this way, right? And we have the peace of that kingdom in our hearts, even though it may not be reflected in our world yet. But a day will come when it will be. And God will inaugurate that kingdom truly and completely. But there's a tension here because it's not like that, right? So we're trying to live this out. And yet we live in this world that's just kind of a mess. And every time it, think, it seems like things are getting better, it just takes one wacko to mess it up sometimes, it seems. There's a tension here. So the question is this. How is it supposed to show? How should it show? What do we do? Here's what's cool. The crowds asked John the same thing. And here's what he said to them. Verse 11 in Luke 3. He answered them saying, Whoever has two coats, let him give to the one who has none. And whoever has food, let him do the same. So basically, give to others. Don't be selfish. Especially when people have a need. Tax collectors also came to him to be immersed. Teacher, they said to him, what should we do? And he said to them, do not take more than you are supposed to. And something you need to understand here, tax collectors were reviled. Uh, They were usually Jewish people, but they were in the employ of the Romans. And so what they would do is they would go around and and they would extort money from people. I mean, the Romans had a certain tax, but then if the tax collectors were going to make money, they would actually make the people pay more. And when they did that, of course, they weren't loved by their brothers and sisters much. They were considered to be the lowest of the low. They were considered to be traitors. And so he's like, listen, guys, don't be greedy. Knock it off. And then there are also soldiers. And these would have been Jewish soldiers, by the way, not Roman soldiers. Soldiers asked him, saying, and what should we do? And he said to them, Do not take things from anyone by force. Do not falsely accuse anyone and be content with your wages. Don't use your position in violence to extort money from people. And don't complain about what you're getting paid. Does any of this sound like something Jesus would say? Yes. Yes, it does. I'll answer that for you. They lived in a world, guys, where might was right. If you had the strength to take it, you would just take it. If you wanted something and someone else had it and you had a way to take it from them, that's what you would do. But the Messiah came to change all of that. The message of repentance and loving others is actually going to be the cornerstone of everything that Jesus talks about. So notice all of John's answers here spoke right to where the people were in their daily lives, basically treating other people correctly, treating them right, and then being content with what you have, which actually may be a little harder for us, I think, in this day and age. He didn't ask them to change their jobs, uh, but merely to show their love for the Lord by loving others in the midst of their occupations. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard from people like, man, you know, if if I just got to, you know, if I was a pastor, if I was doing full-time ministry, I would just sit around and read the Bible all day and it would be so good. Nehemiah was a light for God in the midst of the Babylonian Empire as a cupbearer. Joseph was a light for God, even in prison. Guys, listen, we're all called to full-time ministry. Newsflash, every one of us. 
no matter where we work or what we do, if you're a student, you're called to full-time ministry if you believe in the Lord. Uh, if you're a banker, if you're a tax collector, a tax preparer, or if you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, just go down the list. You're in full-time ministry, and our lives should be a light. So the things that John gives us, this list here, right? For us, it'd be live generously and give to others. Don't hoard personal message there. Just going to write that one down here. Okay. Get rid of the junk. Don't manipulate relationships to get your way. Be a friend uh, to that coworker who drives you crazy. Lay down your pride and serve someone. I love this because John gives them immediate practical changes to their life. It's like things that they can do right now, right in the moment. And you have to think that some of the stuff was kind of hard for these guys to swallow. It's like, ooh. You're talking about my bonus here, John. So the word spread, anticipation grew, and the people crowded to him. And they begin asking John, listen, you sound a lot like the Messiah. Are you the Messiah? And that's a great temptation. Anytime God's like a rock in your life, no matter who you are, like when God's rock in your life, there's a temptation sometimes when he's working that we have this tendency to think more maybe of ourselves than we should. And the Bible is full of examples, bad examples of that, where kings and others started out great, but they did not finish well. And that's one of the things that I admire a lot about Billy Graham, who recently passed away, is he's a man that he was the same man, I feel like, for God here I mean, he grew, don't get me wrong, but I'm saying that the man you saw publicly here was the same man that you saw at the end of his life, and few finish well like that. Many ministries have fallen or become ineffective because of pride. So we need to follow John's example, because his response was this. What? No way! I'm not even fit to untie his sandal. And you've got to understand culture because there were certain things that they didn't even ask slaves to do. And one of those things was taking off a guest's shoes because it was that disgusting in the streets. So John's saying, listen, I'm not even fit to do the most disgusting thing that nobody wants to do for him, like to take his shoes off. I'm just immersing you in water as a symbol. But the one who is coming, man, he's going to bring a baptism afar, right? We're going to preach now. It's on. He's going to baptize you in fire. The Holy Spirit is going to be like, in your life. He is coming to gather up the harvest. And he's going to burn away the junk. His crowd was like, oh. So shortly after this, Jesus shows up to be baptized. And of course, John's like, listen, no, 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 no. This is not the way that it's supposed to work. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus says this. Jesus answered him saying, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented because what are you going to do? Argue with him? No. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. With whom I am well pleased. Now here's the deal. We don't know whether everybody heard that, whether just Jesus and John heard that. We don't know. But here's something I've always wondered about this story. And maybe you have too. 
why did Jesus need to be baptized? Right? If this is a baptism of repentance for sins, why would Jesus sidle down to the water and say, hey, me next. I've got my change of clothes with me. Let's do this. Right? If he was sinless, why was he being baptized? And so I came up with three things. I'm sure there are a lot more, but the first one would be this. I think part of it was that he wanted to identify with us, right? He became like men, right? He became like us. He came down to us, Emmanuel, God with us. He laid aside, so to speak, like his godness so that he could be here with us and do this thing, right? Live this life, understand what that meant. And so part of it, I think, is he wanted to identify with us in that regard, but he also wanted to lead by example. The second thing is commission. This is the beginning of his ministry, And I don't have time to go into it, but when Messiah King comes, one of the things that's going to happen is he's going to get anointed, like with oil, like old school David, like dumping it on his head, right? That doesn't happen yet because he's not king yet. That will happen someday. So in some ways, this was an anointing of sorts for that purpose. It was symbolic. It signaled this change. And also, there was this Holy Spirit empowerment that came down on him because, like, for us, God gives us this measure of Holy Spirit, right? When we become believers, there's a part of, like, he lives in us. He's directing us. He's guiding us. But for Jesus in this moment, it's like he dumped the whole bucket on him, right? It's like, okay, it's on now. Here we go. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased, right? It's on. And then the last thing is obedience. And frankly, I think this might be the most important reason. More than anything, we see Yeshua was just continuing in his path of submission to the Father's will. Jesus was fulfilling this plan that God had set out before him. Guys, God has given each one of us a purpose for living. And if we're humble and we're obedient, he will guide us. Our lives are for the purpose of bringing him glory. And in a sense, we continue John's mission. We, guys, are now the way makers for Jesus. We're the way makers for Jesus. No matter where we go, we're paving. The way that we live our lives should point to Jesus in the kingdom of God, and our actions should introduce Jesus in the kingdom of God to this world, wherever we go and whoever we encounter. Think about that for just a second. Like, what if I could, like, walk into the coffee shop and, like, people just knew, and not because you're being weird, like, hey, do you know Jesus is your personal Savior, right? It's not, we're not talking about that. What we're talking about is just the way that you treated the barista, the kindness that you show someone who's obviously stressed in their job because their coffee shop is way too small and they have way too much traffic, hypothetically. Everything that we say and do should hold open the curtain so that Jesus can step onto the stage, guys. Everything that we say and everything that we do should hold open the curtain so that Jesus can step onto the stage. We sang about it this morning. He's coming back. That's truth. Yeah, but man, Pastor Bill, it's been so long. People have been saying that for forever. You know what? They're going to be right one day. Are you ready for that? In that day, he's going to finish up the work. He's going to set all things right, and he is going to establish a lasting peace that will speak to this world. In that moment, everybody's going to know unequivocally, okay, this is true. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
But until that day comes, the Jesus that people see is in you and me. So have you followed John's instruction? Have you turned to follow him? And if you have, are you paving the way for others to do that? Do people see Jesus as the first thing in your life? Or is the way you're living blocking his light? Wherever we go, whatever we do, as followers of Jesus, are we obedient in those moments? Listening to what he would say, to what the Holy Spirit would direct us to do. Oh, go talk to that person. That guy needs a much bigger tip than what you just wrote on that. Whatever. Are we holding open the curtain so that Yeshua can take center stage in our lives? Pray with me. God, we thank you once again just for your word. And we probably don't thank you enough for this gift that you've given us. Uh, More than instruction, God. But just this glimpse of who you are that we have that we so often take for granted. And so I just thank you for yet another opportunity to look into it and to see And just to see you. So God, I pray uh, for the folks in this room and those that can hear my voice, for those that are believers and that are all in uh, for you, God. I I just pray that that people would see Jesus in our lives and more than some kind of a trite bumper sticker or anything like that, just in the way that we carry out your mission and we love other people. We love you and we love other people and it's seen. That others would see that. Like, I don't know what's different about you or, or what's going on, but i got to know. And for those that aren't maybe on this path today, God, I, I pray that you just be in their world right where they're at and that you would just continue to gently call them. That you would just show them your love and your mercy and the grace and the freedom that you offer no matter how bad we've screwed up or how many choices we've made in a row even that have taken us in the opposite direction of where you are. We love you and we thank you and we surrender our lives to you today. We say our lives are yours. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.